This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Reports of sexual assaults on college campuses have increased dramatically over the last five years, according to our first guest. There have been high-profile cases recently involving both CU Boulder and CSU Pueblo, and we want to shed some light on this subject, so we reached a nationally recognized expert in the field, and he lives in Denver. Attorney Scott Lewis is co-founder of the Association for Title IX Administrators, ATIXA. Part of his job, training schools to prevent violence and to comply with Title IX, the federal law that covers many of these cases. Scott, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So cases on college campuses do indeed fall under the jurisdiction of Title IX, this federal law that I think people may associate with gender equity in college sports, but it's really becoming just as well known for its connection to the issue of campus sexual assault and violence. Why do you think that is? Well, it all started actually back in 1992 with a landmark Supreme Court decision uh, called the Franklin case. And the Franklin case expanded Title IX into areas of sexual misconduct in the K-12 arena. But of course, When courts and Congress look at schools, they look at schools. They don't think about K-12 and college. It's all the same. The expansion of Title IX into that was not as surprising since Title VII, which is the employment law, also covers sexual harassment despite never mentioning it in the law itself. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it doesn't just cover sexual violence of students. The first two words of the law in Title IX are no person, not no student. And so it actually covers faculty and staff as well. And we're talking about incidents of rape, assault, improper contact. Title IX was in the news recently when the Broncos hired their new coach. Uh, The story resurfaced that Vance Joseph had been accused of sexually assaulting two trainers back in 2003-2004 when he was an assistant coach at CU Boulder. Mm -hmm. To be clear, he denies the allegations One woman declined to press charges. The other wouldn't speak with police. So he was not arrested or charged. And shortly after he left CU, the Broncos said they looked into this, decided they were comfortable hiring him. But it is a chance to ask why these cases are sometimes dealt with on campuses and through the sort of higher education uh, system and not necessarily the criminal justice system or courtrooms, you know. Yeah, when you have two separate processes here, one is an administrative process and one is the criminal process. And there's also the civil process. People could sue in court for money as well. Hmm. The reality of it is colleges, like any school and like any employer, frankly, have been dealing with activities that employees or students do that are crimes for a long time. We deal with theft, underage drinking, drug usage, simple assault. It would be odd to not take on the issue of sexual violence and sexual harassment as well. Imagine for a minute if somebody was assaulted on the basis of race or disability and the college were to say, oh, sorry, that's a crime. We don't do that. You have to go to the police and that's the only place you can go. I mean, people would lose their minds. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that colleges would look into a crime using an administrative process. The police and the DAs have a criminal process they have to follow. The civil courts have a civil court. We have an administrative duty. It's been established a really long time ago, uh, way, way back in the 60s, but then reestablished in the Davis case in 1999. Wouldn't uh, law enforcement just come on campus, though? Law enforcement could come onto campus for anything, drugs or weapons or arson or burglary. And they sometimes they do. Um, but if you look at the prosecution rates of some of these particularly sex offenses, it's pretty, pretty low. Um, and 
we still have to operate administratively to reduce the harassment. You got to remember that sexual violence is merely the most egregious form of sexual harassment. It's just the worst thing you can do. Uh, You go from verbal harassment and online harassment and written harassment all the way to touching someone. And so it's just the worst one. They all could be considered crimes. So reports of these incidents on college campuses uh, have increased dramatically, you say. And it's important to say reports of them have increased. That isn't necessarily that the incidents of them have increased. Help shed some light on that. What are the numbers and why might more reports be coming in? Oh, wow. The numbers, you know, vary depending on the source you look at. You know, when we poll our members at ATIXA, we hear numbers since the 2011 Dear Colleague level uh, increases ranging from 150% to 400-500%. Now, let's explain what the Dear Colleague letter was. This was from the federal government to institutions of higher education, and it may very well explain why more reports are coming in. It, It absolutely has a big impact on the explanation. The two things that probably caused the reports to go up more than anything else were one, the Dear Colleague letter. And the Dear Colleague letter of 2011 from the Office of Civil Rights and the Department of Education reiterated the points of the 2001 guidance they'd sent out. It was almost like the the OCR was saying, hey, remember what we wrote a decade ago? We really meant that. Like, you should probably do something. Do something about what? Yeah. Sexual violence on college campuses. Mm -hmm. What was the what was the call out originally from the federal government? Let's just be clear on that. That 2001 guidance said we should try to find equitable processes that are not victim biased, but victim centered in the in the response and paying attention to those making sure that we do things promptly, equitably, reliably, thoroughly, um, and impartially. That's the big one that everybody struggles with. 2011, they reiterate all these same points, but that landed on every president's desk and got everybody going. The other thing that was going on was they were doing more investigations under the Obama-Biden administration into colleges. Um, The Violence Against Women Act had been reiterated under uh, then-Senator, then-Vice President Biden uh, and toward toward aiming toward college campuses and violence against women. Of course, sexual violence is some piece of that. So that all that plus the media grabbing hold of that between 2008 and 2011 gets more people interested. It gets more people talking about it and it gets more people reporting. Gets more people reporting. Does it improve reporting processes, do you think, on college campuses? It starts. It gets people aware that they can report it. I mean, for, you know, as long as women have been on college campuses, and it's not that only women can be sexually assaulted. You can have men as victims. You can have same-sex sexual assault. There's all the varieties that can occur. But when you find schools that are now willing to hold people accountable, these these mostly women who before would have just transferred or quit school or just stayed quiet are now more willing to have their voices heard. Do you think that college presidents might have overreacted to the Dear Colleague letter? No, I think what we did was we sort of had to... Uh, Reap what we had sown, as it were. When we don't make appropriate responses to any type of civil rights discrimination, what happens is Congress and or the courts and or the enforcing bodies like the executive branch begin to tell us how we're going to do it or regulate us. And you've got two bills right now pending in Congress that are going to be more regulatory. The Clary Act and the Violence Against Women Act became more regulatory two years ago. There's a lot going on here that says you'll either handle this well or we're going to start telling you how to handle it well. The courts were ahead of that game. On uh, the CU Boulder campus, there was also a case uh, back in 2001 that I think was a, a pretty landmark case in this Title IX sexual assault arena. Can you just briefly 
talk about that? And, sure. And what has changed since then? Yeah, we actually refer to the there's a there's a triad of cases. Then all the incidents happened between oh one and oh four, but they all came to light between oh five and oh seven because it takes time for them to get to the courts of appeals. And so when the judges came down with the opinions, you had the Simpson case here in Colorado. You had the Williams case against the University of Georgia, and you had the Jennings case against the University of North Carolina. And the Simpson case at CU, mm-hmm. uh, 2001, a student says she was gang raped in her apartment at a party for football recruits. Yep. Two and, women. I'm sorry? Two women, Two actually. women. Yeah. And uh, there was a suit under Title IX. Yes. And in that case, you had an off-campus incident at an arguably... Um, school function. That was certainly one of the school's position is that that party was not their function. And before that case, you had a a defense by schools to say, hey, stuff that happens off campus isn't ours. The Supreme Court Davis decision I spoke about earlier in 1999 said you had to control where this happened and you had to control the people who did it in order for it to apply to you. This case said, no, wait, you could have these things that happen off campus where the harassment effect So in other words, you're sexually assaulted by somebody off campus. When you come back on the campus and that person's there, you're obviously going to feel that hostile environment and the effects of that harassment. So the court says, you know what, schools, you have to reach off and grab that. The other two cases dealt with both when campuses know about things, looking at histories of recruits. That was the the heart of the Georgia case. And then the egregiousness of verbal harassment and the power dynamics being individual between individuals. And that was the heart of the Jennings case. So these three cases all happen to involve athletics, of course, which is makes it interesting. Um, but certainly the same kind of things could have been going on in academia, Greek life, bands. And look at all the stuff we're finding out now in that world. So by no means reserved exclusively to athletics, you're saying? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Well, this this is interesting because there are similarities between that much older Simpson case and a story that was in the news about Title IX a bit more recently involving CU and an assistant coach, Joe Tumpkin. Mm-hmm. So he was charged in January with felony assault after allegedly abusing his girlfriend. Citing an ongoing investigation, university officials said they would not comment on this. Uh, Tumpkin, who has preliminarily... Uh, going to be heard uh, with this case March 23rd, has also not commented on the charges. Uh, and this is a case in which the act took place off of campus. Right. And the person allegedly abused was not associated Correct. with the school. So how does that qualify as a Title IX issue? Explain that. Well, what you have to look at is you have to look at, will the indiv- is the individual who's alleged to have engaged in the harassment um, is there a possibility that the harassment they're alleged to have engaged in, even if it's off against somebody who's not affiliated with our institution, right. could those effects happen to our campus? And so, as you can well imagine, from a Title IX perspective, you do this thing called a PPTV analysis. Let me go through that really quickly. Pattern, predation, threat, and violence. And if those elements exist, you have to worry that that individual might also engage in those acts against somebody within the community. So again, the behavior off campus is not entirely separate in the view of universities from what might happen on campus. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You do that analysis to see if it would reach off. Now, that's from the law perspective. Really quickly, from a policy perspective, campuses can pick and choose what types of misconduct they choose to grab off campus. As you can imagine, let's say a guy in the motor pool gets a DUI off campus. Mm. 
the employer is probably going to want to be interested in making sure that person's not driving for the campus somewhere since they have this DUI. Or somebody off campus gets accused, uh, one of our students gets accused of a weapons charge off campus and selling meth. They're going to want to grab that and say, wait a second, that might happen on our campus. We want to have a safe campus. I want to say that Tumpkin was let go from CU Boulder. Yeah. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And in Colorado, uh, Title IX, that federal education law, has been in the news recently as it relates to sexual assault. And so for some perspective, we're joined by Denver attorney Scott Lewis. He's co-founder of the Association for Title IX Administrators, ATIXA, it's known as. I want to say you've done trainings at CU. They've said they're committed to making their campuses safe. And you talked about the fact that this is not exclusive to athletic departments. Are there other departments, though, where it shows up in greater numbers? You know, the areas where... And, and it, let me, let me start by this. It depends on what type of harassment you're talking about. Okay. When you think about verbal harassment or using um, gender as a discriminatory act, there are some folks that would say on the academic side of the house, you might see some of these issues in terms of uh, somebody not being promoted to tenure-like positions or not being promoted. Stuff that's been going on for a long time. Remember, Title IX is broad. It covers employees as well. In the student arena, you have to look to Greek life. Um, you know, there's a lot of research out there that would indicate that there is a fair amount of harassment and or contact and or sexual assault that occurs in the Greek life entity. We just saw a few years back with the Ohio State band case. Um, you have all this stuff happening in these clubs like band and club sports. And so you got to look at that. ROTC is another area you have to look at. Uh, you look at the patterns of that occur in the military, the story that just broke this morning with the Marine Corps and the nude photos being circulated. You know, that kind of stuff's not just exclusive to active duty folks. And so those are areas that pop up as well. Now, how do those all compare to incidents in the general population? I think that's important context. Yeah, and I think it's, it actually happened less overall and more <laughs> overall on college campuses. Uh, you know, when you compare college campuses to the general population, there are going to be some people that say it's still safer to be on campus than it is to, you know, go down the street and be out at night late at a bar and not be a college student. Uh, and then there's some folks that would say, no, this is breeding this culture. And I think when you get into those subcultures like Greek life, like athletics, like ROTC, um, like some of these clubs and societies that occur – when you compare it internally and you look at athletics, Greek life, ROTC, honors, college, club sports, and then the general population, this is such a cop-out answer, and I'm so sorry, but <laughs> it's it really depends on the school. Okay. Um, generally speaking, athletics uh, in the world of sexual assault can be a little bit lower, but in the world of sexual violence, there was a study that said they're more likely to, the male athletes are. Uh, Greek life, there's one area that it seems to be no question that it's more prolific there than it is when compared to the general student population. How much of this has to do with recruiting and the kinds of um, the, the kinds of guidelines that schools use for recruiting? That is, uh, might they place a higher emphasis on talent over character? Uh, and and I know that some. Uh, conferences have changed their recruiting practices to attract a, a different type of student. Can you talk to that for me? Yeah, I think uh, a decade ago, you might have seen a lot more schools go to the talents over character issue. Um, you're starting to see that turn. 
Particularly, you looked at what the uh, Southeastern Conference, the SEC, was the conference that first said, you know, if you've been found responsible for violence against women or sexual violence, uh, you can't play sports here. I think Atlantic Coast has followed, correct? Uh, And they're all going to start to trickle down. That's That's what the effect of that'll be. Uh, you know, when you first said recruiting, I started thinking about school recruiting. You know, do we take uh, mental talent over character? Uh, would we be willing to take that Rhodes Scholar or that National Merit Scholar, despite their misgivings, if you will, at a prior institution? The state laws that have passed recently and the federal laws that are pending regarding transcript notation are looking to directly address this kind of issue, where campuses who are selective, mind you, over half our campuses are open enrollment. You know, our community colleges don't screen that way. And so for the selective institutions, it certainly gives them the opportunity either at the athletics level or at the institutional level to say, you've got a history we're not comfortable with. We're not going to take you on that basis. On the subject of those who say the pendulum has swung too far, uh, there's another Colorado case involving Grant Neal, a former CSU Pueblo athlete. He's suing that school after being indefinitely suspended by the university because of a sexual encounter with a female athletic trainer. We reached out to CSU Pueblo. They declined to comment, citing an ongoing investigation. Last month, a magistrate ruled that Neil's lawsuit against CSU Pueblo should not be dismissed. By his and the woman's account, the two had consensual sex. He is still, though, out of school. And an interesting aspect of this case In his lawsuit, Neil has named the Education Department's Office for Civil Rights as a co-defendant, claiming that the office's Title IX guidance to universities, uh, the guidance you've talked about already, encourages male gender bias and violation of due process during sexual misconduct investigations. Put that into some context for us. Right. He's making a claim that's very similar to a claim that was made against Xavier University a few years back. And and that's essentially it. You you articulated it beautifully. It's that this guidance makes the school swing the pendulum way too far. Um, And And this is that dear colleague letter in large again from the federal government to universities. Absolutely. And so the idea that the pendulum swung too far, and if I I read correctly, the DOE, the Department of Education, has been sort of thrown out of this lawsuit. They've they've been removed from it, and it's left the school, uh, not the individual administrators, but the school itself sort of to stand alone to defend its procedures. This is what's more common right now, is you're having some schools that may be utilizing procedures uh, that are not, remember I mentioned earlier, the tough part for all of this is impartiality that schools should approach these investigations and say, we're just going to look at it with a blank slate. And we don't even talk about burdens of proof. We talk about standards of evidence and these things that either the evidence stacks up or it does not. Um, When you start to approach it from an adversarial way where the school is prosecutor, and I think this was referenced by the judge in the uh, Pueblo case as well, looking at the quality of the person presenting the case for the school, if you will, uh, versus the quality of the advisor that he was allowed to have um, and the amount of involvement. You see the same thing happen. The other two cases that would be parallels to this would be the Brandeis case that just came down this last year, um, the George Mason case. And let me give you one other one as long as we're talking about the San Diego State case where these processes were seemingly, um, particularly in Brandeis, geared against the respondent. So the person who's accused can't see the reports and they don't have as good an advisor. And the person who's working against them is building a case, if you will, against them. And that puts them in a very tough spot and violates what the Department of Education said, which is be impartial, be fair, 
respect the dignity of the parties, the evidence will speak to what it is. It's not about finding people responsible. It's about having a fair investigation and making your campus safer. So if it's not a question of campuses overreacting, which you think they haven't done, is it that they simply don't have the proper systems in place to address the issues as quickly as they might like to? Two things. One, I think there are some campuses that have overreacted, that have twisted those processes, like Brandeis, uh, to go too far to the side. Um, as far as the campuses not having the good systems in place, it's one of the reasons, uh, you know, that ATIXA was created to put out these models that show how to do this. I, I think what campuses are struggling with uh, sometimes is how slowly these procedures change for them and the being able to find and train the people that are going to be doing this adequately. Final question has to do with new leadership, obviously, at the Department of Education federally and what Title IX enforcement might look like under the Trump administration. Well, there's um, under the Trump administration, uh, there's been a lot of questions. You know, uh, Secretary DeVos the other day said when they were sort of rescinding the transgender protections, which was also uh, related to Title IX and a decision from the Supreme Court about vacating an earlier decision today. Yeah, just popped it back down to the lower courts, which is what we thought they might do since they were given this opportunity to punt. Um, She mentioned in there that her commitment is still to to protect the rights of all students. And so we're hopeful that that will happen. Um, But there's still this chance that the Office of Civil Rights might not investigate as many as they used to. That said, the courts are alive and well and still willing to take litigation. I'm afraid that's where we're going to spend most of our time now. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Denver attorney Scott Lewis is co-founder of ATIXA, the Association for Title IX Administrators. We discussed sexual violence and harassment on college campuses and how it relates to that federal Title IX law. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. What better way to learn World War II history than from the people who fought in that war? Each year, students at South High School in Denver get that opportunity. But age is taking its toll. And after this year, organizers say they'll have to change the focus of the event from World War II veterans to something else. CPR's Sam Brash dropped in on the history class last week. Whenever Elaine Westblade returns to South High School, she likes to visit a wide bronze plaque on the main floor. It lists students who died in World War II. Charles Blaha was a, and Robert Bessie were real good friends of mine. It was just heartbreaking to know that they were killed so young in life. Westblade graduated from South in 1943 and now lives in the Claremont Park retirement community just a few miles from the school. For the last five years, history teachers at South have brought residents from Claremont to talk to students about the war. Westblade offers a home front perspective. This might come as a surprise to you students, but we could only buy one pair of shoes per year. She says the same went for sugar, gas, and nylon hosiery, all items that had to be rationed for the war effort. Mindert Bosch, also a South alum, gives a different view of the war. He served in a unit of anti-aircraft gunners in Europe. How many of you heard about the V-1? Okay, just a couple of you. The V-1 was essentially the first unmanned flying bomb. 
In the later years of the conflict, the Germans fired the early rockets at his troop location. They were very, very scary. They had a fire tail. We could see them coming. We could hear them coming. To give Bosch an audio assist here, here's a V1 recording from the BBC. It was a jagged sound. Maybe that's the way to put it. What we were alert to was when that rocket would stop and drop. And we always took the prone position on the ground if we were close to where the explosion might occur. He says the rockets were terrifying, but not that deadly. He thinks they only killed one member of his unit. Bosch has been part of these living history events since they started. It's getting harder for him. He's bound to a wheelchair, and he has an undiagnosed tremor in his right arm. And those puffs you hear, those are from his oxygen machine. Still, he thinks he has something important to teach the kids. What we need to do in our country is learn more about loving our neighbor and practicing that in various ways. The Department of Veteran Affairs says the number of vets who fought in only World War II is falling fast. Fewer than a million are still alive. The decline can be seen in the group itself. Of the eight original vets who spoke to students five years ago, only three could make it this time. At the end of the lesson, the old-timers field questions from the class. One student asked them to summarize their memory of the war in one word. Elaine Westblade is ready with an answer. The unity of the United States. We were all working together for one cause. Xavier DeSoto asked that question. As the class wrapped up, I asked what he thought of the answer. Unity back then, people needed to come together as a community, like make sure that everyone was safe and that everyone like had what they needed. DeSoto doesn't see that spirit in the country today. He does at South, though, which is one of the most racially diverse schools in Denver with students from over 70 countries. He says what joins South isn't a common enemy. It's a need to understand differences. I even go out and just like talk to people like just so that we can all feel a little more unified, no matter what they look like, no matter where they're from or what type of religion they are. That's part of the reason Westblade comes back to South. She likes to see how much the school has changed in the 74 years since she graduated. I mean, I'm delighted to see that it, there's so many different uh, cultural people represented here at South now. Kathy Stone is the teacher who organizes the Living History Day. She says it's important for students to see that history doesn't just live inside textbooks. I want them to really realize that this is flesh and blood, that history really is real people, and that they're making history right now, too. But Stone says next year's Living History lesson will have to be a little different. Because so many of the World War II group have passed away or can't communicate, she's planning to invite Korean War vets as well. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. On a related note, a 99-year-old World War II veteran just received some long-overdue medals at a ceremony in Lakewood. Private First Class Buford Johnson served in Europe under General George Patton during the Battle of the Bulge. Johnson's daughter, Darlene Johnson Ortega, says her dad was ready to serve when the Army drafted him. Because it was for his country and they called upon him. In the summer of 1944, Johnson's company crossed the English Channel and landed on the beach in France. They then traveled by train, truck, and on foot to the front lines delivering supplies. That November, a piece of shrapnel hit Buford below the knee. He was treated on the battlefield and kept fighting. 
but his daughter says he didn't talk much about the experience. And when he would talk about the war, he would tell people that war was very terrible, that uh, uh, nobody needed to know about everything that happened, that there were some things that happened during the war and some people were injured terribly that uh, shouldn't even know uh, or talk about it because that would give him bad memories. Buford was honorably discharged in the fall of 1945. He went home to his wife and family in New Mexico. And once he came back to the United States, he wanted to be with the kids, but there weren't any jobs in New Mexico. His dad had taught him how to work the fields and how to milk cows and be a ranch hand and be a cowboy. So that's what he would do in Montana and Wyoming. As a result, Darlene says she didn't get to see her dad much. But Buford came to live with her and her family after he had a stroke 17 years ago. She says her dad, who's bilingual, still reads every day and has always been a sharp guy. Even though his education at the school was only third grade, grandmother and grandfather homeschooled him. And he passed those tests going into the service with flying colors. Darlene says somehow her father never received all the medals he earned, but he did get a few when the war was over. He asked his mother to keep them safe. And years later... When he went to ask her for his medals that he wanted his kids to see him, uh, she couldn't find them. Then They were in her family trunk, and she couldn't find the few of them that they did give to him. Darlene asked Congressman Ed Perlmutter's office for help replacing the missing medals and to get him the ones he never received. And 72 years after he came home from war, Private First Class Buford Johnson was awarded the Bronze Star, a Purple Heart, and a handful of others. There's a full list at cprnews.org. A couple of days after last month's ceremony, he again wore those medals at the local American Legion post. Everybody there just kept clapping, and they were so happy with him, and shake hands and thank him for his service. That was so neat, really wonderful. The celebration of Buford Johnson will continue with an early 100th birthday party this summer. We've posted photos of a young Buford Johnson and of the medal ceremony at cprnews.org. Now, a style of music called gypsy jazz, and you may recognize the tune. C'est si bon de partir n'importe où, bras dessus, bras dessous, en chantant des chansons. C'est si bon de se dire des mots doux. Des petits rien du tout Mais qui en This is Denver vocalist Christy Stice with Colorado's Gypsy Swing Review. Their new album together is called I Love Paris and it features some reworked old favorites. Stice is here and so is band leader Elliot Reed. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks. Elliot, first things first, what is gypsy jazz? Okay, this was a style of music that uh, kind of accidentally happened in the 30s and 40s. Accidentally? Accidentally. There was a, a guitarist named Django Reinhardt, uh, Django Reinhardt, French uh, pronunciation, but uh, he was just a gypsy that lived in a caravan outside of Paris, 
and a musician, and he would grow up in his gypsy camp and play everything, and then he would go and listen to music in Paris. And at that time, he started hearing the American jazz that was becoming popular all over the world. And so he and his friends, uh, in between other gigs, would get together and jam, and they would just play American jazz tunes because that's what they wanted to do. And that eventually formed into a band, and so they started. They were playing all this American jazz stuff, the Hot Club of France, and they were doing it with their instruments that they were using. So they were using acoustic guitars instead of drums, and they were using violin instead of saxophone, and stuff like that. And they pretty much accidentally created the genre of gypsy jazz. They were just gypsies and playing American jazz music, but it ended up having this whole different kind of sound because it had all the influence of Paris and all the uh, gypsy influence. So it came out a really nice style. Right, this kind of lovely fusion now, gypsy is a term that I understand to have fallen out of fashion in, in other regards, I suppose, referring to the Roma people, but it lives on in the name of this particular jazz genre, I guess. Yeah, it's always been called that. So, What makes it different from American jazz, do you think, Christy? So it, certainly some of the instrumental differences. What else have you been sensing as you've recorded it? Yeah, um, the <clears throat> basically... Uh, with uh, traditional American jazz, you hear a lot of horns, you hear trombones and saxophones and trumpets and um, and drums. Um, in the in the gypsy jazz genre, there's more. Um, it's all uh, acoustic. Two two they call them McAfee guitars. They're acoustic guitars as opposed to more of an arch top that you would see more in traditional American jazz. Um, you also, instead of a drummer, one of the guitarists plays in a style that's called la pomp. So they basically, the rhythm guitar serves as the drummer of the band. Oh. Um, and then uh, sometimes in gypsy jazz, you'll hear clarinets, accordions, um, and mandolins. Accordion. I was wondering about accordions, which I think of as so French, of course. And, and how do you think it changes the mood? It definitely makes, um, I think the music... Well, the the songs are more succinct, so they're not typically as long as a lot of traditional American jazz tunes. Um, it also is really, I find it to be very happy, uplifting kind of sound that you get out of gypsy jazz. Yeah. Um, not that traditional American jazz is not uplifting, but um, but it's just a different. It's a different, very danceable. Um, and it has a very very strong strong beat with this. Uh, the the rhythm guitarist playing in this yeah it's sort style. of more uh, it's still closer tied to the hot jazz sounds of like Louis Armstrong in that time period so the gypsy jazz sound has stayed with that hot sound instead of getting cool like modern jazz did well, so it's still got that energy and drive which is really fun Christy you mentioned the word happiness happy associated with this why don't we hear happy feet which is sort of the embodiment of what you've been talking about that sounds great happy feet I got those happy feet, give them a low down beat and they begin dancing. I got those ten little tapping toes, when they hear a tune I can't control. My dancing feet save my soul, weary blues, can't get into my shoes, because my shoes refuse to ever grow weary. I get cheerful on an earful of music sweet, cause I got those happy, 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 happy feet. It is hard not to smile when you hear that or dance and tap your feet. Elliot, I understand you moved to Colorado about 15 years ago to start a band in this specific genre. What what drew you to it? 
You know, it was just stuff that I found on my way of exploring jazz and other kind of music. And this was an offshoot of that that I thought was really interesting. And then I was playing a band, and we were just kind of starting to learn it before I moved here. And I was the only one that was really interested in pursuing this genre. Of gypsy jazz. Yeah, and so I thought, well, you know, I think I'm just going to move, get a fresh start, and see what I can do and put something together and, you know, continue my own exploration of gypsy jazz. And have you found that others share your passion for it when they learn about it? Uh, You know, it's something that's growing a lot. It's something that people didn't used to have a lot of access to. Hmm. But now with all the internet and everything, you can listen to these gypsies in Europe playing in clubs in Paris. And so that access to all that kind of music has really made it grow. And so now I find more and more people that really fall in love with it. Dancing. I got those ten little tapping toes. When they hear a tune I can't control. My dancing feet save my soul. We're in blues. Can't get into my shoes. Because my shoes refuse to ever grow weary. I get cheerful on an earful of music sweet. Because I got those hap, 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 happy feet. Oh, yeah. I got those hap, hap, hap. One more time I got those hap, 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 happy feet Christy, talk to me about your exposure to gypsy jazz, how you came across it. Um, well, I studied I studied jazz voice down in Florida, and, um, and I found myself drawn to singing in different languages. I first started singing in Portuguese, uh, Antonio Carlos Jobim tunes. Um, Such a gorgeous language as well. Yeah, I love it. Um, it's a difficult language to sing in for sure. Um, but I, I had actually studied French um, back in high school and a little bit in college. And I've always been very interested in the French language. So um, I, I had already learned a few tunes in French. And I, I moved back to Denver about six years ago and was introduced to this band uh, by their current are their old upright bassist, um, and uh, and then just fell in love with the music. I, I would go out and see these guys play, and then I started sitting in, and then started learning more French tunes, and it was just a perfect fit um, for me. Going from more of a traditional jazz um, background, you know, it's it's coming into this this particular music was a great fit. We're talking about the Gypsy Swing Review in Colorado. Their new album is I Love Paris. And one song that listeners might be familiar with is Beyond the Sea. Now, you sing it in English, but of course, it was originally a French tune, um, La Mer. We'll meet beyond the show. We'll kiss just as before. Is it intimidating, Elliot, to rework a song that is perhaps so well-known or that you have, you know, very imprinted versions of from exposure to other versions? It's not necessarily intimidating, but it's very hard when you have something that's so ingrained in your head to find something different to do. That's always a challenge. How do you meet that challenge? You know, I wish I could tell you how the process <laughs> works. But you just keep working with the music and playing the songs, and then ideas just start coming. You try them, you throw them out, you try some more, until you find something that really feels like it's 
your way of doing it. Do you find yourself trying to get rid of Bobby Darren in your head? <laughs> oh, yes, all the time. <laughs> Christy, was it the same for you? Yeah, it's really interesting when you take you take older songs and you try to approach them in a different way. Um, I think what's really cool that Elliot does is he's a great arranger and he takes these songs and he'll throw in, um, not to get too into musical theory, but like modulations in interesting places or or these sort of vamps where the whole band jumps in and, um, and, and they do these really interesting things in different places in the tunes and... Um, you know, it it just makes it interesting, and then it makes you feel like, oh, we're we're doing something different with something that's that's so old and has this sort of core um, history to it. So, and your your kind of spacing and timing on a lot of these songs that are recognizable is so wonderfully different from what I feel like I've heard on these these songs before. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I really like that about her singing. She does really nice phrasing through everything. Why did you sing that one in English, though, instead of doing La Mer? <laughs> That's well, my fault. That's your fault. Well, <laughs> it's an ongoing debate. I really do want to sing it in French. Yeah, she so. wants to sing it in French, but I, people in America know it so well as the other one that if we do too many of the songs all in French, then they won't necessarily connect to it as well. So we try to balance between the French and doing something that they can be familiar with and grab a hold of. But of course, you can experiment live with different versions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I have a, I'm, I'm working on Elliot. We're trying to, <laughs> we're trying to work towards, I, I think that if I could sing it um, in English half the time and I could sing French on the other half of the tune, we might do something like that and kind of ah. mix it up a little bit. Why does it have to be all of one or the other on a particular <laughs> track. Why not mix it up? Chris has a long tradition of that in jazz. Uh, yeah, switch to switch to French on the on the beat. bridge, taking it yeah. out. Right. <laughs> Do a little Portuguese if I, you want. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Indeed, much of the album "I Love Paris" from Gypsy Swing Review is upbeat, but there are several ballads, including "Under Paris Skies." Stranger, beware! There's love in the air. Under Paris skies Try to be smart And don't let your heart catch on fire Love becomes king The moment it's spring Under Paris skies Lonely hearts meet Somewhere on the street of desire Parisian love I understand this is one of your favorites, Christy. Yeah. Why? Um, I don't know. It's just such a tragic, beautiful love song. Uh, I, I, connect, I connect emotionally to this song just uh, through trials and tribulations, you know, of my own, my own love life and things like that you know it's just (laughs) no it's just beautiful it's uh it's just this this beautiful story and um this connection to to france and this whole romanticism of paris and i just think it's so it's such a beautiful song thank you for being with us both of you Thank you for having us. Thank you. You heard Elliot Reed, who leads Denver's Gypsy Swing Review. The band's new album is I Love Paris, which features vocalist Christy Stice. Catch the band at Dazzle Jazz Club in Denver, March 28th. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
State Representative Brittany Pedersen thinks Colorado must do more to combat drug addiction, and she wants pharmaceutical companies to help pay for it. The Lakewood Democrat plans to introduce a bill that would require makers of opioid pain medication to fund drug treatment programs. As Pedersen tells CPR's Vic Vela, addiction is an issue she's very familiar with. This issue is incredibly personal to me because I have grown up with a mom who has struggled with substance abuse since I was six years old. She has gone from addictions with pills and prescription drugs to methadone to alcohol, back to pills. And I think that um, the issue facing Coloradans right now is that we had people that were overprescribed for such a long time and became addicted to these pain medications. And there's been significant pressure for doctors to reduce these medications and be more aware of how addictive they actually are. But the problem is, is that many people like my mom have just been cut off from being uh, overprescribed to very little. The problem here, though, is that when you cut addicts off, they are going to find another way to meet their needs. And so my mom and so many Coloradans have turned to doing heroin. It's cheap and accessible in the streets. And I personally have never struggled with substance abuse. I, I don't know what it's like. Of course, I have a better idea than many people having watched my mom go through it. And let me ask you that. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. What is it like to witness that? Oh, it's, it's, um, it's devastating. Sorry. Um, you know, I remember, <laughs> oh, I remember as a kid and how much I loved my mom. And there was one day where she fell off a cliff and has never come back. Amazingly, she's um, still with us today. But to watch her suffering and want to help her, I spent my childhood, uh, my happiness depended on what my mom was doing, which meant for a very sad and lonely childhood. I haven't had my mom sober in my life since I was six years old. Well, this issue is obviously very personal to you. Uh, how are you looking to address it through legislation? The pharmaceutical companies, it is well documented that they knew how addictive these drugs were. There was a huge push in the 90s to prescribe pain medication and saying that we were overlooking people's pain and that we really needed to be taking a serious look at this. And doctors were prescribing these medications at a very high rate. Now we're into 2017, and we have a state with a high percentage of our population who are addicted to these drugs. So you're proposing legislation that goes after the folks who make these drugs, that they're part of the problem and that they should pay for the solution. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. We cannot financially um, deal with this on alone, and they were part of creating the situation that we're in, and they do need to be a part of providing funds to help with, with actual recovery for people. That sounds very bold, and I could imagine the pushback already in my head. What are folks in the pharmaceutical industry telling you about this legislation? If they were willing to come to the table on being part of the solution, that would be ideal. 
the pharmaceutical company, while these drugs can be beneficial for people who are suffering, they were being pushed and overprescribed, um, and they're incredibly addictive. And so what my bill would do is ensure that a percentage of the costs would go towards people who need treatment, who don't have access to the financial assistance to actually do so. Lastly, Representative, is there hope that through your personal pain that your mom has felt through this issue, it will help the person out there who's listening to this right now? I think that by me telling my story, I hope that it helps in putting a face to the people who are going through this. And I think that one of the biggest hurdles that we face is the perception around people who struggle with substance abuse. Yes, they have to be willing to do the work necessary to get better, but we also share responsibility in providing access for these people for treatment. That is Democratic State Representative Brittany Pedersen of Lakewood speaking with CPR's Vic Vela. A representative from the pharmaceutical industry said they couldn't comment on legislation they have yet to see. That's Colorado Matters for today. We're at Colorado Matters on Twitter, CPR News on Facebook. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us.